KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, being black in America and being black in France, Gary Young will talk about Josephine Baker, the black American dancer and singer who went to Paris in the 20s and later renounced her American citizenship. She was interred at the Pantheon alongside Voltaire and Rousseau last week. Also later in the hour, Father Greg Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries, the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program on the planet. He's got a new book out now. It's called The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. That's the subtitle. The top title is The Whole Language. He'll explain what it means. But first, today's political update. And of course, for that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor at large at the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Welcome back, Harold. Always good to be here, John. Well, I want to talk about political news from some of the states, starting with the good news from Georgia, where Stacey Abrams finally made clear that she is running for governor. She'll be running alongside Raphael Warnock, who has to run for re-election for that Senate seat he won last year. It's going to be a great Democratic ticket, maybe the best uh, the best in the country. And meanwhile, on the Republican side, uh, uh, Donald Trump got his wish, and former Senator David Perdue will challenge Governor Brian Kemp in the Republican primary. Uh, so the Republicans are deeply divided. The Democrats have a dream team. Georgia is going to be a darn interesting state. Well, it certainly is. And the interest, one of the interesting questions coming out of Trump's backing of Purdue to the point that Purdue decided to, to challenge Kemp is whether Trump is going to do this in a host of other contests around the country. Trump has it in his power to divide the Republican Party narrowly along the lines of if you really want to go down the path of saying that Trump really won the 2020 uh, election. You know, the Democrats at the moment are rather grasping for uh, uh, silver linings in the clouds that are <laughs> presented by polls. Yeah. So, you know, that has to be one of the things uh, that they are hoping for. But in Georgia, certainly there's going to be unified support on the Democratic side for both Stacey Abrams and, uh, and Reverend Warnock. So uh, we shall see what the spillover effects and how bitter the uh, Purdue-Kemp contest uh, becomes. And let's remember that Purdue lost his Senate seat. He ran as an incumbent and lost to Democrat John Ossoff, a uh, young uh, newcomer in, in the runoff in January. So he enters this as a loser, which, of course, is the worst thing you can be in Trump world. Yeah, uh, but Trump is willing to overlook loser status if it is surpassed by uh, Trump overallis status. And so he's clearly made. Uh, made an exception here. Uh, you know, for Democrats, the issue of turnout, the issue of uh, voter suppression, all of that is going to play big time in Georgia. And we'll have to see how that uh, how that works. Yeah. And we think Stacey Abrams should be governor right now instead of Brian Kemp, that if they hadn't uh, had a massive Republican disfranchisement campaign run by Brian uh, Kemp, she'd be governor today. So this is a this is a rematch that that the we really need. Well, and one thing we learned from the victories of Warnock and Ossoff last November uh, is that, you know, the Democratic ground game, the uh, in, in the broadest sense in Georgia, 
thanks to Stacey Abrams and the people working with her, has been there the longest, has the, 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 the most, uh, the deepest reach. And this is going to be another major test for that. And that's, that's, in essence, what the Democrats have going for them in Georgia is that. Now, there may be some other things they have going for them, too, because the Supreme Court uh, appearing to be on the verge of overturning Roe v. Wade is going to be an issue in how, uh, among others, how suburban women swing vote, suburban women vote. Uh, it, it's going to be one of the things there. So there's, there's a number of, the, the, you, you can sort of see a path to victories in Georgia, but this path is strewn with a hell of a lot of Republican obstacles. So we shall see. And as you have reminded us more than once, the Democrats have much better chance of winning statewide races for Governor Stacey Abrams, for Senator Raphael Warnock, than in the uh, newly gerrymandered districts being created right now by Republican legislatures around the country. We got some news about that in Texas, uh, one of the places where the Republicans are showing what they are capable of in creating uh, new uh, district maps, the Justice Department sued Texas on Monday over its uh, maps for denying black and Latino voters uh, the opportun equal opportunity to vote. They've done things like they've carved up the black neighborhoods of Dallas are now included in districts that stand more than 100 miles into the rural white areas to give white majorities. Here's the statistics I found. 95% of Texas population growth in the past decade has come from people of color. Uh, but guess what? White people come out ahead on the new maps. Uh, whites make up 40% of the population in Texas, but control 60% of the new legislative districts. Latinos make up almost 40% of the population, but control only 20% of the districts. Blacks make up 12% of the population and only control 2% of the districts. And Asians make up 5% of the population, but control 0% of the districts. This is what Republican power can achieve. Right. And in, in the court decision uh, authored by uh, Chief Justice John Roberts in Shelby County, which struck down most of the Voting Rights Act, one part that was preserved was a part about minority representation. And so the Justice Department suit against Texas this week is premised on that and premised on precisely the kind of statistics you just cited. I, I, should, I should add that minority underrepresentation also casts sort of some light on uh, residential segregation, obviously. Uh, one issue about Asian representation is that often Asian Americans aren't necessarily quite as clustered under our residential segregation system as African Americans and Latinos. We, there's one district in California, uh, which is represented in Congress by Judy Chu, the Eastern San Gabriel Valley, uh, which does represent uh, a high degree of uh, Latino, of, excuse me, of Asian population. Uh, and, and there are areas in Texas where there are su substantial communities of uh, Vietnamese Americans and such. So it's, this, this is doable, uh, but it, it can be a little more of a stretch than for uh, Latino and Black representation. And we have also gotten a look at the California maps, which are going to be made public uh, later this week. The biggest news, which made headlines, is that uh, the new maps of the San Joaquin Valley have uh, led Republican Representative Devin Nunes 
who is politely called controversial in these news stories, to uh, decide he's not going to run for re-election and instead he's going to run run uh, Trump's new media empire, and we're not quite sure what that is. We haven't really talked about Representative Devin Nunes before. Uh, that that signals both an omission and uh, a degree of good taste, I think, on our part. <laughs> you know, he's been an absolute shill for Trump on, on Capitol Hill. He's also been sort of uniquely litigious. I mean, the peculiar thing is Republicans historically claim uh, that Americans are too litigious and they hate trial lawyers because uh, they represent consumers and workers instead of big corporations. But no one has been as litigious as Devin Nunes, who, uh, when he's attacked in in speeches or in the media or what have you, or in advertising, uh, he, uh, he thinks that that's something he can go to court on, including one campaign that uh, featured a cow discontent with, uh, uh, with Devin Nunes. <laughs> it, and, this is one uh, of my favorite stories. This was a Twitter account. The story here is that Devin Nunes has based his entire political career on the claim that he is a dairy farmer. He poses with his cows. He gives interviews in the pasture. But it turns out his family sold the family dairy home up by Fresno and moved their operations to Iowa, where they opened a different dairy farm. Devin Nunes kept this a secret for many years, and finally it was revealed two years ago, and somebody opened a Twitter account uh, in the name of Devin Nunes's cow complaining that they didn't live in California anymore, they'd moved, they'd moved to Iowa, and Devin Nunes sued. He said, he had endured an orchestrated defamation campaign, one that no human being should ever have to bear and suffer in their whole life, close quote. We have some advice for our listeners. If someone is on your case and, and embarrassing you or making you unhappy, don't go to court because that will only make them more famous. Oh, absolutely. Although, you know, it, it's sort of easy to see how Devin Nunes will, will mesh in what there may emerge as a Trump media empire, because uh, this is precisely the sort of ridiculous thing that uh, Trump, when attacked, would engage in. If you're willing to go to court over a Twitter account that uses a cow to expose (laughs) your leaving the state with your dairy farm, then you're you're really set to work for Donald Trump, I think. (laughs) You know, I mean, clearly unfit to be a member of Congress or on any legislative body uh, on the planet. But, you know, as uh, someone who can channel the instincts of Donald Trump, I think Devin Nunes is, is probably in a, in a job to which he's better suited. Two other notable district map changes here in Southern California, the district immediately to the north of Los Angeles, the one that right now goes from Lancaster out west to Simi Valley. It was once uh, held by Katie Hill, who then had to resign because of a sex scandal, and then the Republican won by just a couple of hundred votes. Uh, The word is Simi Valley is going to be removed from that district, which which will give the Democrats a good chance of reclaiming it. Have I got that right? You've got that right. The district is represented in that from that special election that elected Mike Garcia, who is the Republican representing that district. Mike Garcia has not voted in Congress as if he represented a swing district, much less one that is now being redistricted into one that somewhat advantages Democrats. He's voted like a down the line Trumpian. And I I think he was electorally vulnerable before redistricting, and I think he is more electorally vulnerable once we get the final maps. 
And the one other notable Southern California district that has uh, changed maps is the Irvine district of our hero, Katie Porter. The New York Times reports that it's going to become significantly more Republican next year and, quote, that is a fate that could prompt her to run for the Senate instead, either by challenging Alex Padilla, who was appointed to fill Kamala Harris's seat, or she could wait to, to run for the other seat, which will be vacated by Senator Dianne Feinstein, now 88 years old. What do you know about Katie Porter's future? Well, I would be surprised if she runs in a primary against Alex Padilla. Alex Padilla is the first Latino to represent California in the U.S. Senate. And that makes him, uh, that gives him a kind of special stature, which I think uh, would make any progressive Democrat like Katie Porter, and unfortunately, there are not enough progressive Democrats like Katie Porter, <laughs> right. um, but make any such Democrat reluctant, I think, to wage a primary there. Uh, Alex Padilla doesn't represent quite fully the wing of the Democratic Party that Katie Porter represents brilliantly. But nonetheless, I think that's uh, that's a stretch. Now, Dianne Feinstein's seat, uh, assuming she doesn't run again, God forbid, that doesn't come open until 2024. So that would create a two-year gap in which Katie Porter could be a valuable private citizen or whatever, doing important stuff and hopefully staying in the public eye. And then again, if Dianne Feinstein should resign or uh, go through some, a process, which people who are about 90 years old often go through, eliminating them from voter rolls, let's say, you know, she certainly could be an, uh, a viable candidate for appointment. Now it's time for news of the class struggle, which is becoming a regular feature of this segment. Today's news, we're recording this on Wednesday, is that Kellogg workers who've been on strike for many weeks have rejected a contract offer by what we're told is an overwhelming vote. So the strike against the Battle Creek cereal maker will continue. We're talking here about cornflakes. We're talking cornflakes, yes, uh, and, and Rice Krispies, I think. The Baker's Union had conducted two successful strikes early this year against Nabisco and Frito-Lay. Kellogg's has proved a much more antagonistic employer. They've been doing everything to preserve a two-tier system. Well, not actually to preserve it, but to make it worse. Up to now, if you're in the lower tier, give reduced pay and benefits uh, there's a way to move into the upper tier uh, if you're there for a while. Uh, Kellogg's was trying to put through a plan which would make anyone hired after a certain date a permanent status, kind of undercutting not only the incomes and benefits of an increasing number of their workers, but the, the, the whole raison d'etre for having a union. And they've been more active bringing, bringing in strike breakers than either Frito-Lay or Nabisco was. So you have some really angry workers there who, who all of them work overtime. This is a job that pays very well, but has this sort of lean structure that basically requires pretty much every one of the 1,400 workers in their four plants to put in many overtime hours. They've devoted a lot to the company. And they don't like being treated this way by the company. The LA Times reports that during the pandemic, they say they worked 80 hours a week to keep the plants open. Well, that's a good reason to give them a pay, a pay raise. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, but we, we've seen also, I think this is part of a greater wave 
of worker discontent. The uh, workers who struck the John Deere Agricultural Vehicle Company uh, rejected a series of contracts that uh, were presented to them by uh, the union leadership until they finally accepted one. We've seen IATSE almost reject uh, the contracts that uh, uh, were arrived at by the bargaining between uh, union negotiators and, and the studios. We're also seeing a different kind of rank and file revolt. Perhaps America's, in historical terms, most successful union over the long span of its history, the United Auto Workers, uh, which really was, I think, in this whole train of American history, the one union that became a, a real political powerhouse. It was also overtly social democratic. And they've elected their leaders through conventions and delegates uh, since time immemorial. But so many of their leaders recently, uh, in a way that would have been just shocked and horrified the founders of the UAW and early leaders like Walter Ruther, uh, have been convicted of basically taking union money and using it for themselves, that they recently, the, the, the workers were given a referendum by a federal referee who was overseeing some of the union now as to whether they wanted to elect their officers by a new rank and file voting system rather than have convention delegates who essentially are basically part of the existing administration. And they voted overwhelmingly for rank and file voting for uh, officers, which is something the Teamsters do also as a result of federal intervention because of scandals. So in many ways, shapes and forms, we're seeing a rank and file revolt, which is the union analog to the high quit rates, I would argue, in uh, non-union America, which is much bigger, unfortunately, than union America. Uh, Last three months being the highest quit rates in recorded history. One last thing. Bob Dole died on Sunday. He was 98. We got a lot of warm tributes to Bob Dole in the media. As a presidential candidate, he did seem to have a problem with uh, talking. Yeah. I mean, it was a combination of Senate shorthand and Dole's own sort of taciturn manner. So he would uh, he would say things on the campaign trail. I covered a little of that in, when he ran for president in 1996, when I was a political editor of the LA Weekly. I remember at one point he was trying to make the argument that the federal government was overreaching, which is a traditional Republican argument, no matter what, and that the powers it's, it was uh, showing should really go to the states. But he didn't really make that argument. He just said, 10th Amendment, 10th Amendment. Well, I mean, the 10th Amendment of the Constitution says that uh, if the Constitution doesn't specifically give power to the federal government, uh, then it should go to the states. But he didn't really bother to explain (laughs) that. And I was looking around. No one in the crowd knew what the hell he was talking about. But this is how he spoke. And um, it was fine when he was in the Senate, because everyone there knew what he was talking about. But there were only 100 senators. And at the time Bob Dole was running for president, there were about 300 million Americans. So one of many reasons he did not win the presidency. However, he was quite eloquent in alerting Americans to the problem of what he called in those TV ads, ED. He's the one who introduced the topic of erectile dysfunction to polite mixed company. Would you agree that selling Viagra in starting in 1998 was perhaps Bob Dole's greatest achievement? Yeah, and when you consider 
that most eminent retired senators go on and lobby for big corporations or whatever. You have to say this and, you know, Jimmy Carter's Habitats for Humanity, I think, are the two most, uh, what should I say, elevated forms of uh, (laughs) post-elected office uh, contribution. Uh, uh, And in many ways, all I can say is, is both of them might have had a better career once they were exes than while they were actually doing stuff as uh, presidents and senators. Harold Meyerson, readamitprospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Gary Young about Josephine Baker, the American-born black singer, dancer, and French resistance fighter, is being interred at the Pantheon in Paris, where France honors its most distinguished citizens. She's the first black woman to be interred there. Gary Young is a writer and broadcaster, professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, a former Guardian columnist, and a member of the Nation editorial board. His books include The Speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, and Another Day in the Death of America. We reached him today at home in London. Hi, Gary. Hi there. Well, Josephine Baker was the granddaughter of enslaved people. Born in 1906 in St. Louis, she became a dancer on Broadway. And then in 1925, she moved to France to escape American racism. She renounced her American citizenship in 1937 to become a citizen of France. When World War II came, she joined the French Resistance, using her status and femininity to travel and gather information. She's held up as evidence that France has been more welcoming to black people than the United States has been. And indeed, Throughout the 20th century, France has welcomed many African-American artists, writers, musicians, famously Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Chester Himes, musicians including Sidney Bechet, Bud Powell, Nina Simone. Richard Wright wrote in 1951, quote, there is more freedom in one square block of Paris than there is in the entire United States of America. I know you lived in Paris as a student in 1990. Was that your experience there? No, no, it wasn't. And actually coming across those writings at the time, when I didn't know that much about America, I was kind of shocked. Paris to me, I was a student. I studied French and Russian So I spent six months uh, at the Sorbonne, and it was the most intensely racist experience I've ever had in my life. Wow. Three or four days a week, I would be stopped and asked for my papers. I had to carry around my passport everywhere. There were color bars in restaurants and nightclubs. When you were looking for flats, people would say, Vous êtes de quelle origine, monsieur? <laughs> Meaning, what, what are your origins, sir? And if you if I said I'm British, then I would turn up and then I, I would have wasted half a day because I'd turn up and I'd see that I was black and so on. If I said I was black, well, then it would go on anyway. 
And and I lived actually just around the corner from the Pantheon on uh, Rue des Saint-Jacques. It was awful. And then I, I would come across these claims, <laughs> and I would think, is it just me? And the other thing that people would say was, you know what? It would be even worse if you were Arab, which was of little consolation, frankly, but <laughs> was kind of worth bearing in mind. And it should be said, this is not this before, not that that would justify, but before there's any issue of terrorism or uh, or anything like that in its modern incarnation. And uh, I was kind of, I was baffled and not disappointed because, you know, who am I to be disappointed in Richard Wright? <laughs> but I was just like, what the, what the hell is that? And as time's gone on and I had wanted to be the Moscow correspondent for The Guardian and then ended up falling in love with American and going in a different direction and learn a bit more about what was going on in black America and you kind of, and you, you, you get to understand, okay, yes, this is, first of all, it's a statement about America primarily. Uh, and what was going on there in the same way that Obama can say of his dad, as he did in the 2004 speech at Democratic Party convention, my father came to America, a magical place. Hmm. Well, African-Americans couldn't vote. But, I mean, if you came from Kenya and you arrived in Hawaii and you were going to study, then, yeah, I can see it's magical. You've got to look at where... It's not just where people arrive, it's where they come from. And that uh, given the experiences of Jim Crow, given the experiences of intellectuals in general in America, as opposed to France, where they are lauded and praised, I can see how they would experience uh, France very differently. And then, of course, for for the French, there was this real desire to... It's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So France has long had a kind of uh, chippy relationship with the U.S., particularly after the war. You know, they called um, the Marshall Plan uh, coca colonization. The Communist Party was the biggest party in the country. There was a resentment. They didn't join NATO. It was a resentment of American hegemony. And so to have these dissidents from America come to France, well then, yes, France um, uh, embraced them. So there were a few things going on. The experience of America, the warm embrace of France, and, and I just touched on this, but it's worth emphasizing, the degree to which France does lord embrace its intellectuals. That At a certain point, James Baldwin wrote about being arrested and showing the man that he was an author uh, the policeman and the policeman kind of going, oh, well, you know, you should have said so. You know, <laughs> author, trumps, author trumps black vagrant. And this takes us to Josephine Baker today. Being interred at the Pantheon is a very big deal in France. That's where Voltaire is buried, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Victor Hugo, Emile Zola. Why do you think President Emmanuel Macron approved Josephine Baker's interment there? I mean, Josephine Baker is is a big thing there. She um, she was awarded the Croix de Guerre and the um, Légion d'Honneur, which are France's higher high order of merit, both military and civil. So it's not crazy that she might end up there. By the way, 
I learned, even having done four years of French, a new verb during this research, this article, which is pantheonise, which is to pantheonize. Good. That people can be pantheonized. <laughs> um, but, but these are political decisions. There's a range of people who might be, it doesn't cost you anything. It's quite kind of garish, really. They dig somebody's bones up and then put them back in the pantheon. But nonetheless, it's a kind of, um, it's ceremonial and it's symbolic. And so you have to look to what it symbolizes. And I think that France has, has had some challenges with race and racism over the years. It's got one of the biggest fascist parties in Europe or extreme right parties in Europe in what was the Front National, which is now being eclipsed by another party. And it's an article of faith in the Republican notion of itself, the French French Republican, not the GOP. The, the, the notion of la République is indivisible. And so race is not a category that is recognized even. And yet racism exists. <laughs> and few people would really doubt that then comes along the uh, black lives matter movement and there has been this very very severe pushback in france against uh, what they call la politique identitaire um, identitarian politics and just to give one example which is the paris opera did what most artistic bodies have done since the black lives matter protests uh, broke out, which is they they took a look at their inventory and said, you know, what can we do? They had a review. What can we not do? What can we do better? And they decided quite uncontroversially, you would think, to drop a few of the pieces that they'd been doing for a while and to no longer do blackface or yellowface. Well, I mean, you'd think that they had banned a cartoon or something the way that they went on. The editor of the liberal Le Monde, Michel Guerin, called it self-censorship and said that the uh, head of the Paris Opera had been wallowing in American culture for 10 years because he had been the head of the Toronto Opera before, so North American culture. There's a movement uh, within the academy to kind of stop identity politics and this push against things like critical race theory, which in America comes from the right, in France is coming from the liberal left. And so you take someone like Josephine Baker, who is American, and you elevate her to this highest degree in her death. And what you say is, you see someone like this can thrive here and they can't thrive there. That we're doing something right and they have done something wrong. That their racism is worse than ours. So let's talk about what we know about race and racism in France today. What do the data on race, ethnicity, and religion in France today tell us? Well, there is barely any data because it's illegal to collect data on grounds of race. So we don't know for sure the level of black unemployment or uh, Maghreb or Arab unemployment in France. We don't know for sure the rates of stop and frisk, the disproportionality. Uh, we know it's bad because we see it. And my experience, albeit 30 years ago, is evidence of it. There have been 
some efforts at some kind of polling. So there was a poll in an area called Saint-Saint-Denis where a lot of black and Arab people live. And there, 80% of people thought that race and ethnicity was the basis for discrimination in dealing with the police or employment. Uh, The Migration Policy Institute found that a third of children of immigrants believe they're not considered French by other people. A third of French people acknowledged being racist. Uh, One in four French people believed that their empire was something to be proud of. Just one in seven thought it was something to be ashamed of. So what we do know isn't particularly impressive. And one of the things that's very important to kind of bear in mind is the persistent bitterness, even 60 years later, around the um, Algerian war, uh, which the French lost and were, were kicked out that that was a scar, a deep scar, on um, the French psyche. And if you talk to most non-white French people, as I did for the column, what they what they'll say is, look, a year earlier, Gisèle Halimi, a Tunisian-French lawyer, feminist, essayist, campaigned on abortion, wealth redistribution, human rights, she died. And there was a push to put her in the pantheon. But the uh, Elysee, the, um, like the White House, the French presidential team decided that because she had represented the Algerian independence movement in the past, that her appointment would be too divisive. Wow. And so African-Americans then, or Josephine Baker then, is not just a way of elevating a black woman who has every right to be elevated and who has done the things that need to be done to get into the Pantheon. And by putting her in the Pantheon and not putting Giselle Alimi in the Pantheon, there is a way of kind of almost negating the colonial experience and saying, actually, you know what? We prefer these black people. Yes. Uh, those people of color we find like deeply problematic. And so the celebration of African-Americans is partly a way to oppose American society, but it's also about not addressing colonial history. So when I think of Richard Wright's, you know, there's more freedom in one block of Paris. I, I, I always think now, yeah, but what happens when you step outside that block? So today, the United States has had a black president. It has a black vice president, has a sizable black middle class. France, you write in the nation, has a, quote, a toxic blend of far-right extremists, secular fundamentalism, and racial denial, close quote. So should we conclude here by celebrating America? Uh, No, no. I don't think anybody should be celebrating America's kind of... uh, (laughs) racial makeup right now. No, my point there is to say that there was a moment, particularly in the post-war period through to the 60s, where African-Americans needed France and France needed African-Americans. Now, African-Americans don't really need France. It's not that they're having such a great time in America necessarily, but the notion that they would, you know, then escape to France, well, I mean, first of all, they're not doing it. But secondly, 
the kind of jig is up in terms of kind of French fascism, French racism, and so on. But France still very much needs African Americans as a foil and as a as a notion of its non-racial potential. And the fact that they're burying, reburying Josephine Baker should kind of tell you something about where that notion stands, which is kind of six feet under. Josephine Baker, I could emphasize this enough, is more than qualified to get into the Pantheon. But getting into the Pantheon isn't really about qualifications. It's about symbols and the politics of the moment. And the politics of this moment in France is a desperate need to profess that in some way they are advanced in the matter of race. And for this, they've had to reach back to the death of an Af- uh, of well, we call her African-American. She was French. She renounced her American citizenship, but American-born uh, woman and, and say, hey, look what we did 60 years ago. Gary Young, his essay about Josephine Baker and racism in France today appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. It's called The Dancer Was a Spy. Gary, this is great. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with the founder of Homeboy Industries, Father Gregory Boyle. 30 years ago, he started persuading people that in a world of systematic poverty and violence, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Father Greg is an American Jesuit priest. Homeboy Industries is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program on the planet. Has offices in L.A. near downtown. He's won lots of awards. Now he's written a third book. It's about the power of extravagant tenderness, and it's called The Whole Language. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Father Greg, welcome back. It's good to be with you, John. Well, the pandemic has been hard on everybody. It must have been especially tough on the people you work with. Yeah, I mean, I think initially, certainly when we were on pretty full lockdown and everybody had to do therapy and classes via Zoom, which was a challenge for everybody, including, you know, um, tutoring and GED prep and anger management and all that stuff. But the mayor uh, declared us an essential organization pretty early on. And so we... uh, pivoted very quickly to turn our restaurant and bakery uh, into, uh, you know, we, we fed, you know, homeless folks and we address food insecurity for seniors. And, and so that became quite the going operation that utilized all our folks. So, but we've been pretty up and running for, uh, I want to say a year now, probably. Right. I'm sure that some of your people died during during the pandemic, and you write in your new book, The Whole Language, everything stops when there is grieving to be done, and that you lean into the grief. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I think in probably in my introduction of, to the book where I talk about, you know, identity, you know, like things get upended, you know, so for me, you know, it, it's I'm on the road, I'm giving talks, I'm in every detention facility in Los Angeles County doing services as a priest. And then 
interacting with homies face to face. And then all of a sudden that kind of ends and there's a grieving to be done to that. And so you lean in and, and, and then you're curious about it and then you savor it and then you relish it. And then somehow you're trying to get to joy in it. And, and that kind of what is what happens, but grieving isn't just about folks dying. It's also about letting go of the shedding of some kind of layers of how you see yourself and how you engage with the world. So that happened as well, you know, but uh, quite apart from that, I, I have three COVID funerals kind of um, coming up, you know, and trying to kind of juggle those. Mm-hmm. And I had three double funerals from COVID in, during the course of this. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot there's of lot. people dying. You, you open your new book, The Whole Language, writing that the pandemic showed that inequality is not a defect in the system. So what is it? Yeah, I said it's not a defect in the system. It is the system. So it is uh, by design kind of how it, how it works. And so, you know, it's not like people are selfish. I don't think people are, but people are self-absorbed. So a lot of times you have to turn things inside out and it's how you, you know, look at things that, that matters. And, and so, so you want to be able to, um, you know, address the system by, by a counter system. We always think that uh, doing systemic change is like lifting up the hood of something and then asking for a wrench, you know, but it's really about, it's not just about pointing things out, though you have to do that, but it's really about pointing the way. It's about alternatives to systems. So if the system wants to punish wound, then offer a counter sign to that, which is, well, what if we healed wound? What if we attended to injury rather than banish and ostracize injury? So, you know, so if you want to address some kind of systemic issue like mass incarceration, I think that's what you do. You, you counterpose it with some other way of imagining. And I just want to review for a minute the way Homeboy works. A lot of the people at Homeboy's had terrible childhoods with, you know, abusive or missing parents. Then they did terrible things to other people. And then they spent years, sometimes decades in prison. And then they come to you. And then what happens? Well, you have to provide a safe place. So that, that's the initial thing for most vexing social dilemma, homelessness, mental health issues, disaffected youth, and gang violence and returning citizens you present a place that's safe and then people can inhabit their truth in a place that holds them and cherishes them. So if it's true that the traumatized will cause trauma, then it's equally true that the cherished will be able to find their way to the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others. So it offers a certain kind of resilience that's really newfound for people. And then they leave us after 18 months knowing that a healing ends in the graveyard, but you can do essential foundational fundamental healing. And that's what happens here in their 18 months here. Then they're connected, they're engaged, and they're, they're kind of vital in this own kind of uh, relational wholeness, we would call it here. You get the title of, of all your books from the guys, uh, sometimes the girls at Homeboy. This title, The Whole Language, 
was something a former gang member in the book you call him Mario that he told you about being, as he put it, locked up in county and having a cellmate, a Russian kid named Peter. Tell us about the title. Yeah, so I had uh, testified on this guy's behalf because they wanted to deport him to Uzbekistan. <laughs> he came here with his mom when he was nine. And he got into a Latino gang. So when I came back after testifying for him and he didn't get deported, um, in fact, he's working here now. So I saw one of his homies. I said, do you know this guy, David? He goes, oh, my God, Russian boy. We call him Russian boy. And he said, "Um, hey, check this out. We were cellies at Men's Central Jail. And every evening he'd walk out to the payphone. He'd talk to his mom and he spoke Russian. And he said, damn, gee, he spoke the whole language, which was his way of saying fluent. He was fluent. So uh, when, when he said that, I went, wow, this is great. Because what, what if we were to aspire to a certain fluency, you know, the whole language, which is to see, which is I call therapeutic mysticism, where you see the whole person and you get underneath things and you're not tripped up by behavior. The goal is not a, be, a behaving community, but a, but a belonging community. Sometimes I, I glom onto these things and then I work backwards. So I go, oh, I like that, the whole language. What is the whole language? That's kind of a, how I posit it. And, and then the subtitle is The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. Yeah, I have to ask you about that. Extravagant tenderness. Is, isn't ordinary tenderness a, enough? Yeah, except I, I try to get uh, highfalutin. <laughs> I'm a Jesuit, so Jesuits get highfalutin. But, you know, part of it is to, to say it's not ordinary tenderness, that it's more. And again, I talked theologically that, you know, how do we move from the, you know, the doom and gloom of the God that we've settled for to not a gloomy God, but a, a roomy one, one that is spacious. And so and so there you are, you know, it, you know, you receive the tender glance, you become the tender glance, you try to see as God sees and you you kind of understand the depth of what people are contending with, you know? So, so what about love the sinner, hate the sin? Yeah, that's kind of an old chestnut that we've, we've liked to, I, I don't think sin is a very helpful thing. You know, I, I, I remember once I was uh, at a conference and a guy got up and he was proposing a program to deal with gang violence. And I remember he, at one point, he pounded on the podium and he said, look, people, this works. And I remember I wrote in my program, yeah, but I bet it doesn't help. <laughs> and, and I remember writing that and then thinking to myself, not everything that works helps, but everything that helps works. And the notion of sin and the kind of, you know, love, you know, the sinner, but not the sin, all that stuff is very, not very unsophisticated. I think probably for, you know, a thousand years, it probably worked in terms of controlling people, but it never helped. It never invited people to some spacious view of God. I, and I remember thinking the other day, even that, that I think tenet is true. Not everything that works helps, but if you invited people to some larger love that helps, but it also works. If your if your goal is to somehow control behavior, but the sin thing has really, we've kind of backed the sin horse. 
<laughs> and it's a way of people not really coming to terms with that people are unshakably good and everybody belongs to us. Now, what does that action mean? What does it mean that a guy assaults an aged Asian woman on the streets of San Francisco? What is that telling you? If it's just Asian hate crime and if it's just racist, then you don't get beyond your moral outrage. You don't get underneath it where you say, oh, wow, does a healthy, whole, well person ever do that ever? No. Well, then maybe we heal people. Maybe we try to uh, include people. Maybe we try to deliver mental health services in a timely and appropriate way. So that feels more sophisticated to me in a good way. In a lower key, there's a lot of wonderful stories in this book, as in your others. One of my favorites is you describe bringing a couple of homeboys with you to give a talk to a thousand school superintendents, I think it is, and you have your guy sit in the front row, and one of them, you call him Eddie, you say he's been at Homeboy for four months. He says to you in the elevator afterwards, you know what I love most about Homeboy? And what, what was his answer? Yeah, so we were waiting for the elevator. There were two other people with us. And so he he's a little tiny guy. I just saw him the other day. I hadn't seen him for a while. And just tiny. And he was hanging onto my, my shoulder. And we're waiting for the elevator for the parking structure to arrive. And he was leaning his head on my on my arm. And I remember saying in the book, he was he wasn't tired, he was tender. <laughs> And then he, and we're both staring at the elevator and he says, you know what I love the most about homeboy? And I said, what? He says that you're not embarrassed by us. <laughs> and I remember it just kind of slayed me. I, I remember I, right away, I, my eyes just welled up with tears and we just stared at the elevator. And, and so I, I kind of riff on that, you know, about, I think I was talking about God at the time about how God, the God we have, the one we settle for is, is embarrassed by us at cocktail parties, but <laughs> and wants to avoid us. But the God we actually have is never embarrassed by us, if I recall it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's another kind of story you tell. In the new book, you describe a visit to Pelican Bay State Prison. It's California's supermax. It's where the state puts the people they consider the worst of the worst. They call them incorrigibles. The guys who are there, many of them have been there for decades. Many will be there for the rest of their lives. Tell us about your visit to Pelican Bay. Well, I, I think I, I gave a talk or I did a mass. And, uh, but the, the story that I tell actually didn't happen to me. It was about a concert pianist with a little combo who, uh, you know, gave a concert. And uh, so they had like 80 guys in there with guards. And, uh, and the chaplain was telling me about it. And he said that they, before too long, that everybody was just weeping. And so they finished and the concert pianist had a kind of a Q&A. And they said, do you have any questions? And nobody could speak because they were just sobbing from how beautiful this was, and, and a guy got up and, and uh, he, the only question he could eke out was why? And, and then the, the pianist started crying and he says, 
because he knew exactly what the question meant. He said, because you are deserving of beauty and you are worthy and there is no difference between you and me. That's why. And I found it very powerful because I knew this guy who asked the question. And so uh, it was kind of a reference point. I, I kind of spent more time on it, but it was that we're all the same. We're all, we all were born wanting the same things. We all born really with the same last name. We belong to each other. And that's why. So if people want to support Homeboy Industries, what can they do? Well, they can go to our website, homeboyindustries.org. And especially during the holidays coming up, you can order all manner of things to send for Christmas gifts. Uh, you can come by and visit. You can volunteer. We're, you know, tutors and the like. And we have all sorts of businesses that you can, electronic recycling and restaurants all over the place. And so you can help that way. Gregory Boyle's new book is The Whole Language, The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. Father Greg, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us Thank today. Thank you, John. It's always good to be with you. Stay well. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.